0: All right, friends, welcome to & Coffee. This is a very special edition, birthday edition, also like almost high holiday edition because we're very close to the holidays. And um, by the way, we're broadcasting live from a different location. I don't know if you guys notice, the cool back—it looks like a cool background behind me, right? Yeah, it, it does, right? We're in the Grand Library over here at Chabad, huh? Oh, I should sit on that side. Yeah, I don't know, but you know what? The gray is giving me a cool ambiance. I feel like there's lighting, it's like a whole thing. Anyway, if I were to have like a, just a YouTube channel like this, this wouldn't, not, this wouldn't be that far off from like the background. Although, you're right, books would be good also. All right, at least we have multiple options. So here's the here's how I want to start. Sorry? Next week. Next week. There's always more options. Well, we should be actually back to our place. But, so here's the deal. Last week we spoke about choice. And this week, I want to speak about motivation. Now, they're, they're loosely related, by the way. I will say, like, choice, what we choose, is based on motivation. But here's the angle that I want to throw out there um, that I think is very important. Oh. David, I'll, I'll uh, no, I, there is, a, David, there is a link. I'm going to send you the link. OK. But so here's the deal. When you talk about motivation, um, There are different factors that motivate a person. And this, I don't mean to do a comprehensive look at motivation, what motivates us. But roughly speaking, there are two ways to be motivated. One is by core truth. And the other is by consequence. So, let's give a random example. Not so random, but you'll see what I mean. So, what is... Oh, yeah, that might be. So what, um, here's, an exa- here's a negative example, but it's an example nonetheless. So somebody does something wrong. Somebody in a, let's say, in a prominent uh, position of leadership, power, you know, whatever, influence, does something wrong. We call this in America, in English, in American English, a scandal. Yeah, there's a scandal that, that breaks. And the next thing you know, there's, uh, there's an apology. Yeah. So the question is, what's the apology? What, tri- what motivates the apology? Is it the fact that I did something wrong and I feel bad about doing something wrong? Or is it motivated by I got caught and the hammer's coming down and I don't like the consequences and therefore I'm sorry primarily because it hurts me now. Are you with me in the difference? Right. One is I'm sorry for what I've actually done. And the other one is I'm sorry because now I feel some pain and pressure. So I want to give you a, tell you a story. A story that everybody knows. It's a biblical story. The story of Joseph. As you know, if you've been in my classes before, Joseph is, I mean, with all apologies to everybody else in the Torah, Joseph is my favorite biblical um, personality. I think that Joseph is relatable, down to earth. I'm kidding. That sounds like a dating profile here. But no, Joseph is like super real. It's like, Abraham, can I relate to Abraham? I mean, have I founded a movement that has you know, billions of adherents today? Probably not. But, I mean, a guy who goes from riches to rags to riches, you know, I don't mean necessarily financially, but I mean like someone who's, who you know, has everything and then loses it all and then still is able to maintain their faith amidst struggle and challenge, to me that's, number one, inspiring, but also a very practical role model in the fact that we're all, we all struggle like Joseph did. But anyway, getting back to the story of Joseph. So this is, I want to share with you an idea that comes from that story. Um, the brothers, as we know, 10 brothers, they sold Joseph as a slave. And Joseph ends up being sold to various, the Ishmaelites uh, and others, and, and, and the major says that he changed hands, so to speak, several times. Ultimately, we know the end of the story is he ends up in Egypt, and he ends up working for a dude named a guy named Potiphar, okay? And he's working for Potiphar, and Potiphar realizes this guy is not just another slave; he's got he's got potential. This guy is like Joseph is, you know, he's he's another type of guy. Great. So he gives him a position of prominence and 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 etc. And, and we know the story, right? The whole story plays out with um, Joseph rising. Within his position to the top, and then being framed for a crime by Potiphar's wife, who wants him, seduces him, and, and framed for a crime he didn't commit, he ends up in jail. And then he in jail, he's the dream interpreter and all that stuff, and a, and a and a sensitive and holy guy. And ultimately, he becomes. Ultimately, he becomes the viceroy of Egypt. And as as the viceroy of Egypt, the Torah tells us, a famine breaks out, and now Jacob sends his sons, those very same. Brothers. Of Joseph, they send, he sends them down. Jacob, the father, sends these brothers down to buy food. And Joseph, the Torah says, Joseph recognized his brothers. V'heim lohi kiruhu, But they did not recognize him. So Joseph sees mitamal, which is Yiddish for out of nowhere, out of the blue. He sees his brothers coming into the land, and they're there to buy food. And he realizes, they look at him, he looks at them, he sees, he knows who they are. They have no clue who he is. He is much older. They sold him when he was 17 years old, according to the commentaries. He didn't yet have a beard. And now he had a beard, and he looked different. You know, was he, what kind of clothes was he wearing? I mean, he was the vicer of Egypt. He was probably wearing some sort of official garments. They had no, they couldn't even fathom that their brother would be that guy. I mean, even if you think that there might be a a physical similarity, there's no way that any one of them, those brothers, would have made the connection that, yeah, the viceroy of Egypt is the brother that we sold, you know, 20 years prior. The whole thing would be ludicrous. So the Torah says that Joseph recognizes them, his older brothers. Remember, Joseph was a younger brother, not the youngest, but the 11th out of 12th of of the 12 sons, the 12 tribes. He was number 11, so he was younger than those 10. He recognizes them. They don't recognize him. Good. And then the Torah says he begins planning something. And he begins speaking with them harshly. And the first thing he says is, because he was from southern Egypt, so he spoke to them with a southern accent. He said, y'all are spies. Okay, that was a little uh, poetic license. But he accused them of being spies. And they say, no, we're not spies. We're just, look, we're just 12 brothers that have a father who needs food. And one is back home with dad. That's Benjamin, the youngest, the baby. And uh, it wasn't a baby, but, you know, always the baby. And then um, one of them, we don't know where he is. And that was Joseph, ironically enough. That was the guy right there. And, well, no, we're not spies. We're just here innocently buying food. And just says, no, you're spies. Prove it to me. You have to go back and bring your other brother, Benjamin. And they, we can't. A whole rigmarole. And then there's so much drama because then they say, okay, we'll go back and, and, uh, to bring Benjamin. And he gives them food, but he holds Shimon, one of the brothers, like he holds him captive in the meantime until they come back with the other brother, with the, ele- with the 11th brother. Drama ensues, and he frames them for crimes they didn't commit. The whole thing puts them to the wringer. Now, we've discussed many times in many different classes what his intention was. It wasn't retribution. It wasn't payback. It was to evoke within them, I'm cutting to the chase, the idea of teshuva, by the way. Teshuva, as, which is apropos for this time of year. What is teshuva? Teshuva means, teshuva means um, that you are a different person than you were the last time you did the thing that you did wrong. right? Teshuva is... Traditionally, we translate tshuva as repentance. I don't know what that means, repentance. I'll tell you what it means in Hebrew. Tshuva means return or it means change. It means getting to a different place where you were before. So you were before in a place where you did something wrong, you messed up, etc. Tshuva means you can be put in the same situation, but this time you're going to make a different choice. That's a powerful definition of tshuva, which comes from Maimonides based on classic understanding in Judaism. Tshuva means same opportunity, same scenario, same temptation, but a different choice and therefore a different outcome. That's how you know that you're changed, that you're different. Different, In other words, a person can say, I feel different. Well, how do you know you're different? The, only, the proof is in the pudding. If the same scenario would arise and you make a different choice, now you know you've done Shuba, Now you know you're a different person. Good. So Joseph, I'm just cutting to the chase of the whole story. Joseph wanted to put his brothers into a situation similar to when they sold him to favor Benjamin, so Benjamin should come down to Egypt. He should shower as the viceroy of Egypt. He should give Benjamin a lot of attention and preference and favoritism, kind of like the multicolor coat of Joseph, right? And then put them in a situation where they could easily sell out their brother Benjamin. They could get jealous of the younger sibling and just let him languish because he was accused of stealing the goblet of Joseph. Anyway, he, they could sell him out. And if they make a different choice, then he knows that they did Shuva. And ultimately, they did. They stood up for their brother. And that's when he revealed himself and said, I'm Yosef, I am Joseph. And that's the end of the story because he realized they, they had changed over these last 20 years. They had changed on some level. But I want to highlight a dialogue that happens amongst the, the brothers. Not with Joseph, but amongst the brothers. They were speaking in Hebrew. They had no idea that the viceroy would understand them. But of course, he did because he was Joseph and he knew Hebrew. But they were speaking. You know when somebody doesn't want you to understand what they're saying they use a different language? Right? Ever happen? Right, that happens. Oh, (laughs) Sandrine. No, but you don't. It's not like you're you're keeping secrets from us. In my case, it's usually Yiddish. Yiddish. Yeah. (laughs) When I was a kid, that was what it was. It was Yiddish. You know, and then and then I was asked, like by my grandparents, like, do you want to learn Yiddish? I'm like, Yiddish. Yiddish. Hmm. Yiddish. I eventually learned Yiddish, but but the hard way, not the easy way. I mean. Anyway, not conversational either. More of like the, the academic uh, Torah Yiddish. So they, they begin speaking amongst themselves in the midst of this drama with Egypt and, and Joseph, the Viceroy, and put, he's like really putting the squeeze on them on many different levels. And they're like, they're, they're breaking. And the brothers say to themselves, you know why we're getting all these tsars, all, these, all, the, all this hardship? It's because of what we did 20 years ago, to our brother, it's because what we did to Joseph, that we didn't, um, that we sold him as a slave, and we weren't compassionate. That's why all of these hardships are coming upon us. And listen to this: in the middle of that conversation, Reuben, the oldest of the twelve sons, the Bchar, the firstborn, Reuben says, "I didn't. I tell you not to sell him. I told you not to sell him." Okay, so he sounds like the guy, the I told you so guy. There's always a guy, right? Something goes wrong, and then one guy says, I told you so. And you're like, first of all, no, you didn't. Second of all, that's annoying. No, but he actually did. But there's always the I told you so guy. This is like in camp. Um, My kids have pointed out to me that in camp, at least in the camps that they go to, there's, um, you know, color war. Yes, color war is prevalent. Okay. Then there's color war. Color war breakout, right? What's the color war breakout? The color war breakout is, you know, um, how you announce color war in a very exotic way. Yes? Are we familiar with color war breakouts conceptually? Sort of? No? Okay. Maybe not everybody. Not everybody. It's color. What color? Whatever. Or a grand trip breakout. Like the counselors, they don't tell the kids what's coming up. They don't have the calendar. They don't have the schedule. So, you know, they gather everybody into the shul, into the synagogue, and they say to the kids, okay, somebody was caught, you know, leaving the bunk last night, and we're going to kick them out. Whoa. Sorry. Whoa. It gets so negative so fast. But anyway, they do something to, like, you know, really get the kids on edge, usually. Maybe I shouldn't reveal Chabad camp secrets, but nonetheless, I've already crossed that bridge. Anywho, and then they're like, no, color war, and everyone comes out, and they sing, and blah, blah, blah. Okay. Then there's always the kids, the campers, who said, I knew it the whole time. Like, oh, you think you got, oh, you think you got me surprised? I knew it the whole time. Well, you think, really? Ah, I didn't fall for it. I knew it the whole time. So Ruben sounds like the guy, oh, I knew it the whole time. Ruben's like, ah, now now there's problems. I knew it the whole time. I knew it was wrong the whole time. Okay. So Ruben sounds a bit, I mean, I, I hate to say this word, but he sounds a little bit like a Nunnik. Right? You know the difference between a Shlemiel, a and a Nudnik? Okay, I've said this many times, I'll say it again. The Shlemiel is the guy, is the clumsy guy who carries the soup and spills it. The Shlamazel is the guy, and he always spills the soup. The Shlamazel is the guy who the soup always spills on, the unlucky fellow who the soup gets spilled on. And the Nudnik is the guy who says, what kind of soup was it? Like, what? The Nudnik is like, okay, it's like, who needs to know the kind of soup? So Ruben sounds like the Nudnik. He's like, I told you so. I knew it the whole time. So the commentators explain something beautiful that's really apropos to today's conversation about motivation. So what motivates us? And what makes us feel bad about something? The brothers felt bad about selling, Mechira's Joseph, selling Joseph. Why? Because they were running into problems. 20 years later, they were running into problems and they attributed it to a bad decision more than a bad decision, a bad deed that they did 20 years prior. And they said, ah, because of that, that's why these that's why these problems are coming to us now. That's a problem. Oh, I wish we hadn't done it, because then we, this, these problems wouldn't have, wouldn't have befallen us. In other words, what makes it wrong then? Because it's hurting me now. And Reuben says, I told you then it was wrong. And he did tell them it was wrong. He said, I told you then it was wrong. In other words, irrespective. This is the, this is, this is the idea. Irrespective of what's happening to you. It was wrong then, it's wrong now. The wrong is not because you got caught, you're getting punished, there are consequences from your actions. That's not why it's wrong. That's just what you feel. But why is it wrong? Because it's wrong. So let's talk about relationships. In a relationship, when you do something that hurts the other person, right? You say something not nice, not kind, or you, um, you're not paying attention or whatever you're this whatever it is right some you do something in a relationship that Is not nice So what's the problem is the problem that there are gonna be consequences is the problem that you know Ooh, the other party in the relationship is then not gonna be happy at you and, and da, da, da. Yes, that could happen But that's not what makes it wrong. What makes it wrong is the action in and of itself the lack of attention, the lack of respect, the lack of, you know, showing the love, whatever it is. In other words, it something is wrong. If something is wrong, it's wrong in and of itself. It's wrong as it is. Not because it spawns a series of consequences that therefore, that, that then affect us, and then we're like, oh, I, did, I don't like how that feels. Whoops. I hope that makes sense. Does it make sense? Mm-hmm. So there's what's... So in... in, um, in mystical language, I'm going to tell you some mystical terminology. There's yira tata and yira ilah. I'm giving you some phraseology. Yira tata and yira ilah. Yira typically is translated as fear, yira, fear. But, you know, with these, class, if you've been in my class before, you know I don't like the, the word fear as a translation of yira. It's more of like awe ah, or respect or whatever it is. But yira tata means, tata in, in Aramaic is lower, lower fear, lower level fear, and then yira Ila is higher level fear. So what's the difference? So yira, il, yira Tata, the lower level fear is that you're afraid of consequences. So why am I not going to do something wrong? I don't want the consequences. Or when I do something wrong, that w- what's the pro- Why would I do tshuva? Why would I try to fix it? When... I felt the consequences. So that's lower level. In other words, it's all ego-driven. It's all selfish. It's like, wh- when is it wrong when it, wh- when it comes back to bite me? Th- that's when it's wrong. So when I hurt the other person, who cares? But when it comes back against me, now I'm sorry. Again, it's like scandals. Right? It doesn't matter who, what, where, when. Think about a scandal that's you know, out there in the world or has been out there in the world or you know, once upon a time. It doesn't, it's, it doesn't matter which one. And you have somebody that gets up and, and, and apologizes. And you can tell that the apology is only because, number one, they got caught and number two, now there are consequences. And the question is, hold on. In the, in the deepest recesses of your heart, are you actually sorry? In other words, are you sorry for what you actually did? Not because of what happened because of what you did, but in and of itself, what you did. Are, do you recognize the wrong in that? And you can tell when somebody, whether it's public figure or private figure, and the truth is, you know, the question is, do public figures owe, owe me an apology? I don't know. I mean, that might be itself a, a, a construct of, of just theatrics and everything in society, which is another conversation. But in personal relationships, you and I can tell immediately when somebody is genuinely remorseful, somebody really owns up to the wrong that they did, versus when somebody just feels bad that they got busted, Right? It's like, oh, I'm so sorry. Are we okay? Like, it's like, I'm sorry that I got caught. I'm sorry that, you know, you're now upset at me. Not I'm sorry for what I've done. There's a difference. It it comes from a different place. One is still selfish. It's almost like that type of apology is still the same problem that there was in, in, in the beginning. What was the problem in the beginning? I'd said something not nice to somebody else because I wasn't thinking about them. I was thinking about how I felt. So how do I fix it? Yeah, I, Or when do I fix it? I fix it when I feel like I'm suffering because of it. Great. It's still about me. It was about me in the beginning. It's still about me. So when am I thinking about them? I'm not. So making amends really means that I recognize and I value the other person and I think about them. Or in a relationship with God, it's I'm thinking about God and not myself. So I'm saying this because when we talk about motivation, very often what motivates us Are the consequences of the actions and not the action itself what motivates us so often is the outcome of the action but not the action itself the truth is the truth is this also works in the positive in other words it's not only when we do something wrong and then apologize it's also when we do something positive why do we do the positive thing what's the motivation is it because of the benefit that we're going to get because of it Or is it because it's the right thing to do? It's like the schar, the reward of something. Is does that drive behavior? Is it the that that you know the promise of reward, the promise of you know good things that motivates behavior? Or is it because good is good and right is right? So what it comes down to is this: Do we have this genuine sincerity? of being present and connecting with the moment and the situation in an authentic way, in a genuine way, and therefore doing the right thing because it's right, honoring the other, not doing the wrong thing because it's wrong, and not wanting to dishonor the other. Or is our, is our motivation, again, last week was choices, this week motivation, or is our motivation based on what's in it for us? Like, if I do the good thing, it's gonna be good for me, so I'll do it, hopefully. And I'm not gonna do the bad thing because then it's gonna come back around to bite me, so I'm not gonna do it. Or if I do it, then I'll feel bad that it came around back uh, against me. So again, the question simply is, am I present in this moment? Am I being authentic in this moment to honor the situation and the other party here, or am I completely fixated on self and motivated by the outcome and how it affects me? Question is, is it ego-driven? Or is it truth-driven? There is a verse that we encountered a few weeks ago in Deuteronomy, and uh, we had a farbrengen last night at Chabad in town in honor of Shabbat Slichot, the Shabbat in which uh, the Slichot are recited, the Saturday night. Last night was the first night for the high holiday season of reciting these uh, Slichot, which are the the prayers of Slichot. Penitence, Not asking for forgiveness. It's like introspective prayers, a special set of introspective prayers that are recited in the early morning. So we did it at the Jewish midnight, which was 1.38. But you can't just step into like the slichot without prep. So we had a fabrengan, and somebody mentioned a beautiful idea related to this topic and tying it into a verse from the Torah. Moses says to the Jewish people, Ma Hashem, Elokecha Shomimach, what, what does the Lord your God ask from you? He tells the Jewish people. What does God ask from you already? Only, ki'im li'ira al kecha, only to fear the Lord your God. And the Talmud says, what do you mean? How is Moses minimizing this? He says, what does God ask of you already, only to fear him? what is fearing a small thing? And the Talmud says, yeah, because to Moses, it's a small thing. It's not, not a big deal. Okay, fine. But the Magadim is rich, who, just to give you a sense of the Hasidic uh, history, so the Baal Shem Tov was the founder of the Hasidic movement, his student, he had many students, but his primary student was the Maghrib of Mizritch, who took over the mantle of leadership of the Hasidic movement. The Magad had multiple disciples. One of them, which was the Rebbe, the founder of Chabad, and other Hasidic movements spawned really from the students of the Magad, and each one started their own thing, Chabad is one. Okay. Um, but the Maghrib of Mizritch has a beautiful idea, and he says, he asks the following question. Moses tells the people, what does the Lord your God want from you already? All he wants you is to fear the Lord your God. He asked, why does it say the Lord your God twice? Hashem lekecha twice. It says, what does the Lord your God ask of you? Only to fear the Lord your God. It should have said, only to fear Him. What does God ask of you? Only to fear Him. Could have used the pronoun. Why does it say, fear the Lord your God? And he explained the Magad of Mizrich. This goes back a few hundred years ago. He gives a beautiful explanation. He was a mystic, a Kabbalist, a, a Hasidic master. He said that the idea, the upshot is, of the verse is, that Moses is telling you that what does God want? God wants you to honor him and respect him as he respects you and as he honors you. In other words, it's not about about the consequences. Like I've been saying this morning, it's not about the consequences of, I did this this thing right, it's going to be good for me. I did this thing wrong, it's going to be not good for me. It's not about consequences. It's about honoring the other, honoring the relationship. I respect you. And therefore, that in and of itself is enough motivation. Because I respect you, I'm going to do the right thing. I'm not going to do that. I'll do the right thing by you and not the wrong thing by you. Because I respect you. It's not because you're going to take retribution or because karma or because of the universe, because of God, whatever. It's not, not because of that. That's a game. That's like when a, when a child is younger, so you need to motivate through carrots and sticks. You say, if you do the right thing, you get a candy, you get an ice cream. If you do the wrong thing, you're going to lose a privilege. I mean, at some point, we're supposed to graduate from there. And, and what does it mean to graduate from there? It means that we're no longer motivated by consequences. We're no longer motivated by promises of reward or the opposite. We're motivated by the thing itself. As it says in Pirkei Avot, this is in, in, in Ethics of Our Fathers, schar mitzvah mitzvah. The reward of a mitzvah is the mitzvah itself. So if I do a mitzvah, what do I get? What do you get? You got a mitzvah. What else do you need? You, you, got, you, you honored God. You connected with God. You, is there any other reward that you need? What, you also want, like, um, a cupcake? I mean, cupcakes are great, sure. But, like, do you really need that to do the right thing? It's like, you know, in a relationship. So what do I get for being a mensch in a relationship and, and, and being nice to, the, to, to, to my loved ones? Do you need anything? Like, what do you mean, what do you get? You, you, you're a good person. I mean, you're, you, you act like a mensch. You did right by the other. It's like, and what do I get if I don't? Do, do you need any punishment for that? You don't need punishment. It's either you, you love and respect or, or, or not. I mean, it's, it's, it's just doing what's right by the other. So here's the bottom line. In life, I'm, I'm drawing, like, painting very broadly. There's two ways to be motivated, either by consequences or by the thing itself. The same thing is true with God. And here's where I want to pick up what I wrote in the email about choosing God and the the example, the parable, that the Midrash brings. So the Midrash brings a parable about a... um, It's actually in this chapter that we're going to start... um, Sorry, Discourse 10, that we're going to start today. And I'm going to read it. I know we're not not doing it yet inside, but I want to read it here initially, and then we're going to jump into reading the text inside. This is... um, If you have, I'm not going to put it up yet. You'll have to take my word for it. But if you have a copy, it's on page 158. So, and it's the indented paragraph. I'm just going to read it. So for the benefit of everyone listening, here you go. A king entered a land accompanied by dukes, governors, and high officials. So imagine, let's let's just paint the picture before we move on in the parable. Imagine a king. It's hard to imagine a king. We don't have a king. But imagine there's a king who's very, very powerful. And the king enters the land. You know, words, comes into a certain city or whatever it is. And there's dukes and governors and officials. The whole entourage with all of these people, all of these uh, um, uh, individuals of prominence and import, etc. All right, the, the parable continues. The leaders of that land observed this. So the leaders of the land, the machers, they realized what's going on. The king is there with the highest officials you know, of the country. And one exclaimed, the parable continues, I shall take a duke to myself. What does that mean? I shall take it? Kidnap a duke? No. It means that he's saying that he is going to schmooze up the duke. He's going to spend time with the duke. Another said, I will take a governor to myself. In other words, I'm going to schmooze up the governor. Yeah. A third said, "I will take a high official to myself. This official, I'm going to spend my time working that official." The midrash continues. This is all all the midrash with a little bit of commentary from me. There was one clever person, and the in the um, in the Hebrew it's pikeach echad. Pikeach means a wise person. There was one wise person there who said, "I will take the king." Others are replaced, but a king is not replaced. In other words, this wise person says, "Look." The duke, the governor, the official, they all have positions that the king has given them. But they're all, you know, any moment they can be replaced by someone else. So it's not like a permanent position necessarily. It's like whatever, for for the moment they have a position. So therefore, he says, you know who I'm going to schmooze up? The king himself. I'm not going to go for the duke, the governor, the official. I'm going to go schmooze up the king. Imagine you're at a dinner party. And the king is there. The king is there and the officials. So one guy says, I got this guy. Got this guy. The smart guy says, I'm going to go, I'm going to go for the king. The magic continues. Likewise, some idolaters, listen to this. Some idolaters worship the sun. I choose the sun. Some worship the moon. And others worship wood and stone. But Israel, the Jewish people, serves only God, the king. As the verse says, my portion is God, Hashem my portion is God, says my soul. Good. I want to share with you an insight. On his birthday, the Rebbe said, if I bring, uh, gave a talk, this is, uh, the, Rebbe, the Rebbe's birthday is um, right before Passover, like a few days before Passover. The Rebbe once delivered a discourse in honor of his birthday. It was published also in honor of his birthday. One of the more famous discourses of the Rebbe. We've never studied it in Kabbalah and Coffee. But we should. But it focuses completely on this, on this parable. It's a long discourse. focuses exclusively on this idea. And at the core of this conversation is the question. Why do you have to be smart? Why do you have to be a clever person to choose the king? Isn't it obvious? Imagine. Imagine you're at a party. And there's the king. No, Forget lines. It's like, oh, the, I can't get to the king. Imagine there was full access. You could choose whoever you wanted. So there's the king, the duke the minister and the high official. So who are you going to choose? Of course, you would choose the king, right? Why wouldn't you choose the king? So why does it say that this guy chose the duke and this guy chose the minister and this guy chose the the high official and it's only the smart one, the clever one that says, I'm going to go for the king. Why do you have to be smart to go for the king? You have to be silly, you have to be foolish to go for the other guys. So the rabbi explains. No, not the case. And we do this all the time. We go for dukes and ministers and officials when we could access the king. What does that mean? Again, this is a discourse where the Rebbe has many different levels of understanding, like six, seven, different understanding this this parable on six or seven different levels. But I want to share with you one, one, one level of thought. So the Rebbe explains like this. Imagine you are, let me think of an example. Imagine you are a farmer, right? Imagine you're a farmer. And you're at this party, and all the king, the king is there, and all of the king's ministers are there. Sounds like Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall, right? All of the king's horses and all. Okay, whatever. That's a different story. So imagine you're at this party, and you're a farmer, or you own a lot of land, agriculture, and there at the party is the minister of agriculture, the one who sets policies regarding farming. Imagine. And the king's also there, but you're a farmer. And the one who kind of guides the policies and the credits and the whatever. The stuff for farming for the, is there. So who are you going to schmooze with? The king or the one that, uh, that you want to you know, get, some, get some benefit from? So you're going to speak to the minister of agriculture. Imagine you run a school. Or imagine you're the head of a, a school board of your, of your city, of your, of your county. And imagine you're at the same party. And there at the party is the king and ministers, including the minister of education. And you're in education. And you want certain policies to be reinstated or created or taken away. You have an agenda. Right? And there at the party is the minister of education. So who are you going to speak to? The king or the minister of education? It's very tempting to choose to speak to, to schmooze up the minister of education. Why? Because you're in that field and you have an agenda. Right? There's, there's what to talk about. Imagine you are a business person and you own a lot of stuff or whatever. You're moving and shaking and, and you know, uh, wheeling and dealing with, with business. And there's a minister of finance there at the party. So who are you going to schmooze with? The king of the minister? The minister of finance, because he can help. He can help with what you need. Possibly. And so as the Rebbe explains, it's not so silly to choose the duke, the minister, the high official. Why? Because everyone's got an agenda. So based on their agenda, they're like, the king, okay, well the king is like top of the ladder. But on a practical level, I'll get more benefit if I speak to the head of agriculture, the head of education, the head of finance, or the economy. I'll have, I'll have more. It's, it's worth my time more to speak with these guys than go to the king. What am I going to speak with the king about? The king is like, Too high almost. So I'm going to speak to the people that can help me. Too busy or too 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 high. So the Rebbe says, that's why you need someone who's smart, clever, to say, I choose the king. Why? Because the one who says, I don't care about this minister, that Duke, that high official. I just want, I have an opportunity to to connect with the king one-on-one. I'm going to take that opportunity. Why, is that, why, is, why do you need someone smart? What it means, it's not just smart. It's not like the, you know, the uh, book smart. It's someone who gets it. And what does he get? This person gets that when you have an opportunity to connect with the king, you connect with the king. Right? It's like, yeah, sure, you can get a benefit here, a benefit there, a benefit there. But, about, but if you respect the king, if you, dare I say, love the king, then you go for the king. And this really expresses the whole point that I've been trying to say this morning so far. And that is there's two ways to two motivators in life, two general categories of motivation. One is we're motivated, motivated by what's in it for me. What's the benefit to me? And that's what motivates the one who chooses the Duke and the one who chooses the minister, the one who chooses the high official, as Reb explains. The guy everyone who chooses anyone other than the king is motivated by self-interest. Oh, I'm a farmer. This, if I speak to the minister of agriculture, maybe I can get a tax break, a benefit, some land, some, you know, I can get an angle. I can work something. I can work a deal with this, with this guy. Let me speak with that guy. Self, Self-interest driven. The guy who is, and the person who's in education says, I'm going to speak to the minister of education. Why? Again, for their own benefit. And the, the, the business person, minister of finance, again, for their benefit. So everyone's thinking about what's in it for them. It's the bikeach, it's the wise person who says, it's not about me. The king is here, I'm going to pay homage. I don't know if that's the right word, but I'm, go, I'm going to present myself before the king. And that's it. Not about an agenda. It's not about, oh, the king, oh, you think these guys are powerful. The king is more powerful. It's not driven by self-interest at all. It's driven by truth. It's driven by authenticity. That's the whole thing I'm trying to say this morning so far. It's all about truth and authenticity. If something is right, it's right. If something is true, it's true. It's not because of how it benefits me or what I get out of it. It's like if we looked at everything, hopefully we don't, but we're human beings, so maybe, maybe we do a little bit. But if we looked at things only from a self-serving perspective, that would be very sad, right? I only love you because of what I get from it. I only will give to you based on what I get from you. I mean, that's a very, it's a very superficial way to look at things, a transactional relationship. It's not an essential relationship. It's transactional. It's, I do this for you, you do this for me. I mean, which is Yiddish for which is also Yiddish, right? If that's our, if that's how our relationships are, our relationships, our deeper relationships. Yeah, you can have a transactional relationship in business, right? You buy and sell. I give this, I do this service for you, you do that for me. That's fine. But in our deeper relationships, certainly with our relationship with God, it should not be transactional. It's like, well, God, um, don't you know that I did this mitzvah for you, that mitzvah for you, the other mitzvah for you, so that now you owe me these blessings. Look, God will give us blessings anyway, but we should be in it not for ourselves, not for what we get out of it, but in it because it's true. And because what else are we going to do other than pursue truth? If it's true and it's, it's real and it's authentic, and that's where we want to be. We, we don't want to be involved in things that are superficial, rather real. So what's the point? We could be motivated out of fear of consequences. It's like, oh, I don't want to get zapped. I don't want to get smote. God forbid. We could be motivated by reward. Ooh, if I speak with the Duke, if I worship the Son, right? Ooh, it's going to be really good for me. Or we could be motivated by truth, right? The king is the king. The Abish is the Abish. God is God. My loved one is my loved one. Spouse, parent, child, sibling, whatever it is, and that's it. There's no other and therefores. It's not like, because they are this, therefore. No, it's no therefore. It's just, it is in and of itself. The greatest mark of truth is that it's not a means to an end. It's the end unto itself. I love you because, uh, nope, nope, already, red flag, red flag. You love me because? So then you don't love me. You love the because right? You only love me because, so that's what you really want. So the goal here today is number one, to understand this, the distinction, but also to recognize the need, and we ha- this is a need, to move beyond the superficial calculus, calculation of what's in it for me, and to get to a deeper place, a deeper space within God and within self, sorry, within self, where we're thinking about not benefit, but truth. What's authentic, what's real? How does this relate to what we've been talking about in our classes? So here's how it is. In the last several, over the last several months, definitely a few months, maybe several, depending on how you define several, we've been establishing, we've been working through this, basic um, um, challenge of life we've been working through this basic conundrum in life which is how can we make sense of evil prospering how do we make sense of the fact that that, that, that um, there's energy that flows to a negative place it's not fair, it's not right, it doesn't make sense existentially how does it work why would God allow that to happen there are many ways to answer the question free choice, etc but we in our, in our conversations we answered it differently and what we said was the reason why, or the reason how, or the way that evil can prosper is because evil can lift up to a level where all bets are off. This is what we explained last week and the week before that or the session before that. like The last several sessions, we explained this idea, that there is a dimension which doesn't get into the nitty-gritty of you did this, you did that, good, bad, uh, ugly. It, it's, not, it's not about that. It's pure... Divine essence, essential light that shines. It's accessible to all, and from there, evil can rise up. We said at the end of the last week's discourse, like an eagle, and get from there. Let me just double check that. I think we read that part. Let me make sure we did. The eagle terminology. Um, does that 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 sounds familiar, right? Yeah. If you rise like an eagle, the path of the eagles in the heavens. So, so evil can rise up to a place that's undiscerning, that's not getting into it. You deserve it, you don't deserve it. Fine. So a person can say after last week, and maybe you thought this, maybe you've been thinking of this the last few, several sessions. One second. If the, if the universe is structured in such a way that evil has a path, there's a path of evil that can be very successful, so then why are we bothering with all the good stuff? So, so then why should I be a loser, right, and, and follow the right path, yeah, and do what's, and do what, you know, the best of my ability, what's right, and, and then may, you know, maybe it'll work out, maybe it won't work out, let me just go the path of, God forbid, evil, and that's it, and collect, because let me rise up to this place where the, the storehouses are open, where everything's accessible, Divine energy is, 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 is at the ready, is at the taking. And Let me take it from there. Why should I bother towing the line and doing the right thing and putting in all this work? A person could ask this. It may sound like a, like a very theoretical, spiritual question, but on a very practical level, let me, let me break it down like this. A person might have friends who are involved in not-so-legal business activities, and they're making a lot of money. They're making a killing. And a person might say, so then why, why am I wasting my time, slaving, working so hard, doing an honest job, and I'm not making so much money? When, when, when there's these other guys that I know of that are doing this stuff that's not so kosher, but they're making a lot of money. So then wh- why am I going the right way if I can go the lucrative way? Why am I wasting my time? And, and we've explained this, again, conceptually, spiritually, that yes, there is blessing open even if uh, the rules aren't being followed because there's another path that doesn't take a look at what you're doing right or wrong. So then maybe I should go that way. Let's say there's a group of people that are inviting me into their inner circle, says, you know what, you want to make some money? Here's an opportunity. It's not kosher, but it's an opportunity. So now you're tempted. And so what I've said, what I've tried to do this morning is, is preempt this question or preempt this temptation because what I've tried to say this morning is the following. That there's two ways to look at life, two ways to be motivated. One is by promise of reward, and one is by what's right, irrespective of reward. What's the temptation? Temptation is oh, over there there's a lot of money. But is it right or wrong? Is it holy or unholy? Is it truth or is it not truth? So it doesn't matter how well it pays. Is it right or is it wrong? It's like what makes something wrong or right based on how it affects what I get out of it based on the punishment, let's say you were promised you could do something that's wrong, and, and I'll let you use your imagination what that could be. It could be anything. Let's say you were promised and you really believed that You could do something wrong. No one's ever going to find out about it. And it's never going to come back to hurt you. And there won't be any consequences. So you get a free pass to do something wrong. Would you take it? That's what today's class. That's what I've been saying this whole morning. The answer is: What are you? What What's going to determine yes or no is how you live your life. Are you motivated by consequences? Are you motivated by principles? I didn't use that word, but now I'm just now I'm using that word. I'm throwing into the conversation. Are you motivated by consequences? If so, then you'll take this pass because you have an opportunity now. No consequences to get away with it. Sure. If that's your motivation, if your motivation is consequences, that means if it pays off, great. If I get hurt, it's not great. So I'm telling you now, you have an opportunity. You're gonna get a lot of money. You're not gonna get in trouble. Will you take it? Sure. If you're motivated by principles, however, by what's really right, authentically and truthfully, irrespective of whether it pays a lot or whether I get caught, you know, it hurts a lot. I'm not being motivated by ego. I'm being motivated by truth as to the best of my understanding of what truth is, then you will not take that opportunity. And that's the bottom, bottom line of this conversation. The bottom line of this conversation is when it's very tempting to go and make that choice, the book is called Overcoming Folly. The reason why it's called Overcoming Folly is it's all about the stories we tell ourselves. And this is one of the stories we tell ourselves. We tell ourselves, if I won't get caught, then it's okay. If I don't get caught, I'm in the clear. Why? Because there won't be any consequences. So that's it. I'll get away with it. And isn't that okay? The answer is no. Well, I mean, if that's what you're driven by, if if it's outcome-oriented, sure. But if it's about truth, if it's truth-oriented, if our decisions are based on truth, then that's not okay. So how do we overcome folly? The folly of, this is very tempting, and that could be very successful and i might not get caught or and i won't get caught how do we overcome that folly by telling ourselves that that is a false narrative that's a narrative that's based on a premise that life is lived in the consequences as opposed to in the space of the decisions and the choices themselves what makes something wrong is not because it hurts me later on what makes something wrong what makes something wrong is if this thing in this moment is wrong it's wrong and what make something right not because it pays off but because it's right the fellow who's wise says ana nisiv malka i choose the king everyone else chooses this minister that do that high official everyone chooses someone else because everyone's thinking about how it benefits them if i schmooze with this guy down the line it's going to pay off for me the king is sitting here. So the measures continued. As I read inside, I'm going to paraphrase it now because I don't have it open right now. So too, the nations of the world. This one chooses the sun, this one chooses the moon, this one chooses the wooden stone. What does that mean? How did idolatry come up in the first place? How did I, what's the evolution of idolatry? If we take the Torah's account of creation, so God created Adam and Eve, they knew who their creator was. They had a dialogue with the creator. <laughs> Remember? Right? God said, don't eat from the tree. They ate and God said, what happened? There was dialogue. Like, they knew who was in charge. And they presumably told their children. So what happened? I'll tell you what happened. As Maimonides says, the evolution of idolatry is that at some point in time people believed that God is too big to care what goes on. And God put the sun in charge and the moon in charge of certain things and Right? The sun is in charge of this and the moon is in charge of that and the stars are in charge of the other. And therefore, if we want stuff, let's appeal to the sun, moon and stars. And then let's create images that represent the sun and moon and stars out of wood and stone. But God... Because people moved away from truth and they moved toward selfish interests. They moved away from what's right and they moved into what feels good right now or what will pay off, not necessarily right now, what will pay off for me. And they thought, if I have a farm and I need things to grow, I need to have a rain God and a sun God and, a, and an earth God. And that's how it's going to work out for me. And what about the Abish? Or what about God Almighty, the creator? Who needs the creator? I need my field to grow. And the question is, do we do that in our own lives on some level, right? Do we love people because of what we get from them? Do we turn, do we theoretically believe in God, but otherwise put our real trust and faith in other forces because those get the job done? Do we believe that our job is the source of our success and income and therefore self-worth? Or do we recognize that there's a greater truth, a deeper truth there? I'm just asking some questions you know, everyone has a bit of a different experience with all these ideas and questions, but just questions that we can think about in our own lives as we get ready for Rosh Hashanah. Because Rosh Hashanah is the day in which we choose the King. We say, God, we choose you. Not because of this benefit and that benefit, because, you know, it's going to work out for us. Whatever happens, happens. It's not, not my business what happens. But I know that truth is truth. Anon is Siv I choose the King. That's what happens in Rosh Hashanah. We coronate God as king. Hopefully not from a selfish place. Um, Okay. Does it make sense? Yes? Yes? Let me check in with you guys. Make sense? Thumbs up? Okay. Good. Let's do this inside. I I feel very strongly, in a good way, about this this discourse, discourse number 10. I also feel very strongly about the, the framing of this. On the heels of talking about the success of evil, we need a reminder what not to get lured after that path. It's like, oh, evil is successful? Evil could be successful? Sign me up. Great. Have a good time and make coin. Okay, sure. But that's if there's no value in what's really right or wrong. That's if it's just about, you know, can I get away with it? Which hopefully we recognize is not the... Healthiest way to be. Okay, so I'm going to pull up this text. Um, Overcoming folly. Uh, Let's do this one. I love it when I open up a PDF and it's right there, ready ready to go. Okay, here we go. So if you have a book, it's on page 156. If you are following along online, it is... The page 156 that is on your screen. Discourse number 10. Let's do this. All right. Returning to the verse in Deuteronomy. Um, By the way, Deuteronomy 29.18. Is this this week's Torah portion? Uh, It's uh, it's an upcoming Torah portion. It's one of the Torah portions this time of year. All right. But Discourse 10. Returning to the verse, Deuteronomy 29.18. He will bless himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, for by what my heart sees fit, I will go. So, this is the Torah or Moses expressing a dialogue, an inner dialogue of a person. A person might say to themselves, He will bless his heart. Or bless, not, maybe mean something else in, in, in English. But he will bless himself in his heart. He will make himself feel good by saying, I shall have peace. For by what my heart sees fit, I will go. I'm going to live a good life because whatever I want, I'm going to do. I'm going to live a good life, peaceful life. Whatever I want, I'm going to do. Whatever my heart sees fit, I will go. So what does that mean? So the Rebbe Rashab, the author, the fifth Chabad Rebbe, the author of this mystical text says the following. Third line in, the transgressor reassures himself that he shall have peace. The bestowal of life and all that is good. In other words, this guy saying, I will be okay. What does it mean, I shall have peace? It means peace and money and success and happiness. I, it's going to be good for me. It's going to be good. Indeed, let's back and back inside. Indeed, in a full and rich measure, the person says, it's going to be good fully. Why? For by what, what my heart sees fit, I will go. Because he does as he pleases, this is the person's thought, because he does as he pleases, ignoring Torah, he imagines that he will receive an open-handed bestowal from the supernal makif, that's the higher level that is undiscerning, without any reckoning, as do the Clipod and sitrach, where the person says. Now, now is, this the, is this why... Um, Evil proliferates because people know about Makif. Okay, maybe not. Maybe, uh, you know, this is not, not exactly what motivates everyone that commits a wrongdoing because they know Kabbalah about Macif and supernal blessings, etc. But in general, this is what Moses is telling the people. That you might say to yourself, it'll be good for me because I'm going to do whatever I want. And what that means is that because I'm going to do whatever I want, So I'll receive from the high, I'll raise myself like an eagle to get from the place where evil draws its influence from, its blessing from, which is the undiscerning, Macif level. And it's going to be good for me. I won't have to follow the rules. I won't have to, you know, follow the law. And it's going to be successful. So what could go wrong? It's perfect. Back inside. The expression, uh, four lines from the bottom of that first paragraph. The expression, for by what my heart sees fit I will go, is rather like a reason for his confidence that he shall have peace. In other words, why will I have peace? Because I'm going to do whatever I want. And, and when I do what I want, that he will receive from the Makkah, bypassing Seder Shashla. So this person says like this. If I follow the rules, then I'm going to get a limited flow of energy that follows the rules, the Plinko board, you know, how things fall down. And it could either work out, it might not work out. It's going to be limited, you know, based on my performance, based on, you know, what I do, the good stuff that I do, but it's very limited. So instead of that, forget the rules. Forget forget what God wants. I'll do whatever I want. And I'll get from this place, from this all-access, where everything's available. Let's continue. Radak's interpretation. The verse continues, and therefore, thereby sfot, the seda with the thirsty. Sfot means increase. Implying that a far greater measure of beneficence is bestowed to the, sitra achra, to the sated sated sated, above this course, 9, chapter 3, then to the thirsty realm of holiness. So we explain that the evil, e- the side of evil is called sated because it's always satisfied. Evil always is happy. Whereas the realm of holiness is always thirsty because always yearning for God. So it says, thereby s'vot the sated with the thirsty. That means that the sated, the evil side, will get more, s'vot means increase. will get more blessings then the thirsty side, than the holy side. Why? Because the holy side whose nurture is elicited from within Seder Shasha, meaning with limitations. The sated, however, receiving from higher than Seder Shasha, receive without judgment or reckoning. So what, what we have here, again, it's not saying anything new, it's just repeating it within the context of verses in Torah. So it's by, basically showing how this idea in Kabbalah is alluded to, hinted to, in, in the biblical verses. And Moses says... A person might think to themselves, you, Moses speaks to his people before he's passing away, right? He says, you guys might think that you're going to break the rules and, and, and say to God, see you later. And you're going to access this, this kind of, you know, loophole. It's not really a loophole, but you're going to access the Supernal Makif and get all the blessings without having to follow the rules. Easy pass. So what's the problem? Well, I already told you the problem. The problem is: is it about what you get, or is it about what's right and wrong? Is it about the payoff, or is it about the moment? And this is how this is how he unfolds it. So let's get back inside. But regarding this, the next verse reads: "God will not," sorry, "God shall not will to forgive him." That's how Moses continues or concludes this theoretical scenario that you might think you can get away with it, etc. But ultimately, God shall not will to forgive him. What does that mean? So he explains here in our text, only the idolaters can receive from the makif, bypassing say their shal shalut, but not Israel. In other <laughs> words, the realm of evil can access the level of makif, but not Israel. Israel are essentially of inner nature. As it states, for a portion of Havaya is his people. Havaya indicates, say, that yud is Chachma He is Bina Vav is er The latter He is Malchut. So I don't want to get bogged down into this Kabbalistic conversation about the Sviru because we've talked about it many times, and it's he's, I, I'm, I'm, I hate throwing parentheses in, in a discourse in a mimer, But nonetheless, I'm going to do that a little bit and say it's a little bit more parenthetical than, than what I want to focus on right now. Point is that Havaya Yudke Vavki God's four-letter name Yud followed by He followed by Vav followed by He is representative of, of the ten sphera, of the ten energies within Seder Shasha. Yud is Chachma. It's the point of wisdom. It's a small point. He is ex, an ex, uh, a larger letter. It's the expansion, which is Bina, where you um, uh, understand, you you process the Chachma. Vav is written down. So it's like where you go from ideas to feelings. You bring it down into feelings. And then the He is Malchut, the expansion, the action, when it it comes out into the open, into reality. Again, hey is a full, it's a, it's a broad and wide letter. Okay. Fine. So, the, so, so Havaya, God's four letter name, is representative of, say, the Hashashot, of the ten, ten spheres of the ten energies. And it says in the verse in Deuteronomy 32 9, also in these, the next few weeks, it says, Kihelek Havaya Amoy. A portion of Havaya is his people. We are a portion of Yurke That means that we are part of, we're meant to be in the, it, in the system, not above the system, so to speak. Havaya, let's continue, and we'll go to one, page 158 in a moment. <laughs> Havaya invariably connotes, page 158, inwardness. It is also written, God chose you, Deuteronomy 14.2, for God chose Jacob for himself. Choice means selecting between alternatives, selecting and choosing this one deliberately. This gets into choice, which was our conversation last week. So choice means that you have an alternative, but you make this choice. The Midrash in Bamibarabah offers a parable. A king selected a portion for himself, but someone stood up and disgraced it. Can this person be expected to live? In other words, imagine the king says, I like this, and someone else says, you like that? That's terrible. All right, dude, you just called the king's choice Terrible. You just said the king doesn't have good taste. That's not a smart move um, in front of the king. So Israel, the midrash continues, is his share, his portion, and his treasure. As it says, for a portion of God is his people. Jacob is his possession. Deuteronomy 13, uh, thirty-two nine. And you shall be my treasure, Exodus 9, 9.19.5. This is the selection, his choosing of Israel for himself, a concept which is possible specifically in matters inner nature and so what he's saying here i'm going to use my own terminology because sometimes in kabbalah the terminology is a little bit cryptic and a little bit coded so let me say this in hopefully simple simple english this is more complex english let me say it in simple english in simple english what it means is like this yes you could bypass the law you could bypass divine law you could bypass the rules and maybe for a little bit you can kind of access where evil accesses from, from this like open-ended space in makif, this higher supernal level where, you know, the light and, and energy are accessible. Sure, you can give that a spin, but ultimately, ultimately, that's not your path. That's not my path. That's not our path. Our path is to follow the rules, to do the right thing. God shows us not to, not to break the rules. God shows us to follow the rules. God shows us to be in a relationship. And in a relationship it's not what you can get away with that matters it's how attentive you are to the other in the relationship it's like imagine you know uh, a a guy proposes to someone he says will you marry me and she says yes he says great great so now we're engaged and now then we're going to get married and so now my role in life is going to be to see what i can get away with (laughs) so why'd you get married what what, what's going on you got married to see what you can get away with it's like what's what's the whole point you're in a relationship you're supposed to be there for the other and the other is supposed to be there for you and that's it. That's that's the relationship. So what's this business of I can get away with it or or I can I can I can um, bypass the system of the relationship and get what I need somewhere else or some other way. It's like what well, that's that's the cheshman. that's the calculation. That's 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 a, a warp way of looking at it. And so what we're saying here is in a similar thing. God shows us at Sinai, I mean even this language is used in Medrash, the Talmud, and Kabbalah. It's like God betrothed us at Sinai. It's God married us at Sinai. I mean, not literally, obviously, but like, you know, it says the mountain was held over our heads. You know this Medrash, it says the God lifted up the mountain. It's like the Chubba, it says, in Kabbalah. It's like the okay, in, in the Medrash, the Talmud, it's scary. It's like, whatever. But it's like the Chubba was like a canopy over us. And we said, yes, God says, do you want the Torah? God proposed. Do, do, do you want me? Do you want my, my Torah? You want, you want the ring? Yes. And so now what? So now we're going to try to break the rules? We're like, oh, we could follow the rules and be in a relationship and, you know, better days, worse days, whatever. Or we can totally bunk the rules. Bunk, is that a word? Whatever. We can totally, like, say, forget the rules and do our own thing and try to see if we're successful that way. That could work. It could work because there's MACA, there's a level where you can get and you can get free of charge without any effort, without any righteousness. Sure. But what kind of relationship is that? Where's the relationship? God shows you and as we're about to say middle of 158, we also chose God. It's it's two ways. God shows us, we chose Him. So what are we going to say now? Oh, whoops. (laughs) We realize we don't want you? We don't want a relationship with you? Because we got another way to get this? It's ridiculous. It's like we're in a relationship, we're in a relationship. So let's just read this inside. Similarly, Israel chose God. Just like God chose us, we chose God as it is written. My portion is God," said my soul. So God says, you're my portion. And we say to God, you're our portion. Each one says, you're mine, you're mine. In a good way, not in a possessive way. But right? I love you. I love you. And the Midrash, take a look at this. The Midrash on this verse, the Midrash on this verse, comments that Rabbi Abohu quoted Rabbi Yochanan. And this is the parable that I said before outside But now I'm going to read it inside. A king entered a land accompanied by dukes, governors, and high officials. The leaders of that land observed this. Right? The maher said, one exclaimed, I shall take a duke to myself. And I explained to you before why. The duke, the duke can help me out. The The duke can hook me up. Another said, I will take a governor for myself. Oh, the governor is going to hook me up. A third said, I will take a high official to myself. Oh, the high official will hook me up. There was one clever person. And by the way, clever person means an authentic person. A person who gets it. There was one clever person there who said, I will take the king. Others are replaced, but a king is not replaced. And it sounds like also, oh, it's, it's what the benefit of the king. The king is a longer term uh, relationship. It's not about, re- the rabbit discussed this in the discourse that I mentioned before, his birthday discourse, but nonetheless, the bottom line here is That the wise person realizes, the clever person realizes that it's not about the benefit, it's about truth and authenticity. The king is not replaced means, the king is not about the whim and the fancy of what I get from the relationship. The king is not replaced, what that means is, the king is true, the king is real, the king is authentic, the king is genuine. Likewise, back inside, some idolaters worship the sun, oh I can get light. My fields will grow. Others, the moon. Ooh, the tides, this, that, the other. Others, wood and stone. But Israel serves only God, as the verse says, Hashem, Avaya My portion is God's said my soul. Final paragraph of chapter 1 of Discourse 10, page 158. Thus was, the, was Torah given to us, Israel. Torah derives from Chochmah. The nature of Torah mitzvot is inwardness, reckoning, measurement, precise specification. specification. Torah was given to Israel only because they too are of inner nature. What does inner nature mean? It means authenticity and genuineness. Inner nature means that it's real, it's authentic, it's sincere. And This becomes our hallmark. Our hallmark as a people and as individuals. We could speak, you know, globally, I wouldn't mean, I mean globally, we could speak like on a larger level, on the on the macro or the micro. Let's speak on the micro level. You and I ought to strive to be people who are sincere and authentic. And we want a relationship because it's genuine and authentic, not because of what we get out of it. And it, I, I know I sound like a broken record, and that's fine, because really today there's one do. there's one point for today's class. And that is will we realize, or when will we realize? It's a question that we ask ourselves. When will will I realize that my relationship with God is not about the benefit? It's not about the perceived what I get out of it. But it's simply because God is real. God is true. This relationship means something. I value this relationship and therefore I'm in it. That's what it comes down to. And as we get ready for Rosh Hashanah, I think this is the greatest thing that we can realize. The greatest thing we can realize—it's not about what I get from the. It's like, oh, I'm going to go to Shul on Rosh Hashanah. What do I get from it? Right? Like, God, like, give me all this stuff. We also ask for stuff, but as the Reb explains, explaining Kabbalah and Chassidus, that it's not about the ask. The ask is not a selfish ask in Rosh Hashanah. It's God. I'm in it for you. If you want me to do stuff in this world, in this world, I need resources. It's like imagine you volunteer for a mission. Let's say um, you're building a habitat for humanity, right? Build houses, yeah? Right, you show up. And they say, great, you're here. Yes, why are you here? I'm here to build. Great, build. And you say, you got some tools, materials? I'm ready to build. I just need this stuff. I didn't bring my stuff, so give me stuff and I'll build. That's what we say to God in Rosh Hashanah. We're here for you. We're here for you. We want a relationship with you. We want to do what you want in this world, make the world a better place. Tikkun Olam, repair the world. We want a habitat for humanity and God. Maybe we'll, we'll uh, modify the name of that uh, organization, right? Jewishly, a ha- we're building this home, right? And, uh, a home for God, a habitat for God, here. And so we say to God in Rosh Hashanah, I'm here for you. I'm here for you. Here's the thing, just a small detail. In order for me to build your home on earth, I need some resources. First of all, I need to be here. Right? So I need health. Right, if you want me to do your work, I need to actually be here with good health. right? Number one. Number two, I need money. Why do I need money? Because you yeah, need money to do stuff. I need um, whatever. And, and the list goes on. But, but there's two ways to ask. One is, like, I'm in the relationship, not because I love you. Not because I care about you, but because I know that this relationship is going to hook me up with this stuff. Transactional. I'll pretend this, and you'll give me that. That's inauthentic. That's not sincere. That's not an inner relationship. That's an external facade relationship. That's a pretending relationship. So, if you, I'm going to pull up the screen again for those of you that are with me on Zoom. Um, look at this. Um, Torah was given to Israel, the last line, only because they too are of inner nature. So the English is such a bulky translation. You would never say, oh, you look like a person of inner nature. That doesn't mean anything to anyone. What that means in English, in real English, is authenticity and sincerity and truth. You're a person who's sincere and authentic, and therefore your relationships will be sincere and authentic. They won't be about what you get from it. They'll be about because it's important. And this becomes, hopefully, today's, guiding message as we begin this week, which is really the last full week of the year, five seven eight one. Next week already, Monday night is Rosh Hashanah. We transition to a new year. So this is the final full week of the current Jewish year. There's a lot of stuff to think about, and oftentimes people think of the high holidays in scary terms. It's like, ooh, day of judgment, ooh, day of ah, ooh, like, ooh, God, you know, who's going to live, who's going to die. We've got to replace that with, like, with this. God loves us more than we can know. God shows us. We read that today. God shows us. We stood at Sinai and said to God, We chose you also. The question is if today, Sunday, August 29th, 2021, the 21st day of Elul 5781, if we, if we make the same choice today, are we choosing God today or are we choosing a game to get what we want from God today? Is it real or is it this facade, this fake bluff, right? Is it just, you know, pretending? going through the motions to, like, convince something or someone or God or ourselves that we're really in it. And that's the question that only we can answer. And it's really, I don't mean to ask it in a, in a harsh way, but it's really in a way of, of motivation, motivating ourselves to think a little bit deeper, a little bit on deeper lines, along deeper lines, and, and really be inspired, not by consequences, either negative or positive, but by truth. And another thing we mentioned at the Fahrengan last night, a good barometer of our divine relationship is our human relationships. How do we relate to each other? If in our human relationships, we're always looking for what we can get, it's like, ooh, I can get something from you, then more than likely, that's going to be also our relationship with God. Because it's, you know, either we're this way or we're that way. Like, either we're working on authenticity or we're in it for ego. Could, could be different. It doesn't have to be, but, but usually a good barometer of our love for God. If somebody says, oh, I love God, but I can't stand people, it's usually, okay, what kind of love do you have for God? If you, can't, if you don't love God's children, if you don't love authentically, down here, it's really hard to love authent- authentically on a, on a higher level. So, just some, some words of thought. I, I feel like it's coming, like I'm expressing it in a little bit more harsher terms than I mean. I don't mean it in a harsh way, God forbid, at all. It's more of an encouraging way. And I'm not speaking to anyone. I'm really speaking to myself. And I'm just grateful that you all are here to listen and, and to be part of it. So as we, uh, as we get ready for New Year, let's work on our relationships. And um, let's be more genuine. Let's be, let's be sincere. All right. Thank you for joining for Kabbalah and Coffee. We'll take any questions or comments that you might have. Questions, comments. Made sense? Mm-hmm. Thank you. What do you say? Baseless hatred again? Senat chinam. Senat chinam means baseless hatred. Ahavat chinam would be baseless love, and that's actually a very good way of of, of, uh, of framing it also. It's like, what is baseless love? Baseless love means I love you for no agenda, just because I love you. It's not because of what I get from this. It's pure. Sinat. 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 Yeah. Chinam. Chinam. So in Hebrew, chet nun mem, final mem, or in English, no, uh, ch, no, chinam. 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 Yeah. All right, good to see you guys. Um, all right, stay tuned for more fun and excitement this week. We have our course Tuesday night, sixty days. We have some. We have our high holiday boot camp that's launching Wednesday night. Don't miss it. It's canceling the culture of cancel culture. That's happening Wednesday night in honor of Rosh Hashanah. Um, Three part series boot camp, streaming live online as well as in person. So join us for, um, for the upcoming activities. And of course, next week is High Holidays, so take a look at that. Oh, an announcement. I, I, I mentioned it to a few people in a, in, a, in a limited context. Let me continue to mention it in other contexts as well. We'll be doing the learner service outdoors, please God. Be at the, behind Chabad, at the, the back of the building along by the Beltline, outdoors, very spacious area. So in uh, in keeping with a desire to make sure that everybody's comfortable and healthy, et cetera, so we're going to be doing it outside, and uh, you know plenty of space to distance as uh, as everybody wishes. So that's both days of Rosh Hashanah as well as Yom Kippur, from I believe 10 to 11:30. Is that what it is? I think 10 to 11:30 is the official time on that. It's an interactive service. Um, you know, all the stuff that you expect from me, right? Stories, insights, and of course, bad jokes. I mean, we wouldn't have it any other way. <laughs> all right. Um, it's great to see you all. I want to wish you guys Shana Tova, as we do this time of year. Every time we meet and greet each other, we wish each other a happy and healthy New Year. It should be indeed a, uh, a, a beautiful experience. All right. We'll see you all. Shavotov. Tov. Take care, everybody. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye, friend. Take care. Bye, David, Yaakov, Alex, Richard, and Joy. See you guys.